are listening to episode 386 of the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu, and in this episode we are going to talk about every single package that comes installed by default on Slackware. Well, that's not exactly true. We're going to talk about probably one or two packages that come installed on Slackware. But that's what we've been doing lately, is talking about all of the different Linux applications that come installed by default, particularly on Slackware, because I figure, well, it's what I run, first of all, but also just because that does seem like a reasonable baseline to kind of set for ourselves. Slackware famously comes with quite a lot on just one disk. Back when we used to use disks, I mean, and, and so it, it has quite a, a good representation of commands and applications that you find on a Linux operating system without sometimes even realizing that they're there. In this episode, we're going to talk about squashfs-tools. That is squashed read-only file system for Linux. And according to the little info snippet here in the top of the listing in var log packages. SquashFS tools. SquashFS is a highly compressed read-only file system for Linux. SquashFS compresses both files, inodes, and directories, and supports block sizes up to 1 megabytes for greater compression. It is implemented as a kernel module under VFS. The package contains tools for, for manipulation of SquashFS bundles. That includes two commands specifically, make SquashFS, and unsquashfs. I guess the um, the best way to to explain this would just be to kind of go through maybe a an example workflow of how you might use it. There is, I should mention, so so the package itself only includes these two things: make squashfs and then unsquashfs. And then in the documentation for this package, there's the usual assortment of files like acknowledgments and change logs and uh, licensing and stuff like that, but also uh, a sudo-file.example, which is kind of an interesting read. It's a shell script designed almost to sort of take you through all the big features of SquashFS, and, and so if you look at that, that that's kind of an interesting read, actually. That's how I started all of this out, was just reading that. And it is it is quite interesting. I mean, it's it's not it's not the man page or anything like that, you know, but it is, it, it's a good read. And it, it's, it is a shell script, so it's not explaining anything to you. It's just demonstrating how, how to use the, the tool, the tools that it provides. Okay, so here's how to demonstrate, or here's how to use the tools. Actually, you know what? Let's back up. Let's back up a little bit. I think I've 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 talked about this before, but it probably bears repeating in case you missed that one random episode where I did this. But I, I there's a really good exercise that you might want to try if you don't really understand what a file system is. And it took me a while to really appreciate that file systems were less um less magical than they seem. And believe me, they are magical, but they're less magical than they seem. So let me explain what I mean. File systems, for a very long time, I just kind of thought it was something that no one could ever understand. Like, file systems were the lowest level of computing, in my mind. It was, you couldn't get any any more complex than a file system, because they just, they do amazing things. And they do, they really do. Like, they're absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, you know, they have they have all of these functions relating to keeping track of your data, and that's one thing. But then they have all these other functions that ensures that your data is not corrupted, even if you just pull the plug out of the wall. You know, you, you've got journaling, and you've got versioning, and the ability to layer things on top of another, and, and it, it just goes on and on. It's crazy. And yet, at the same time, you know, like, if you start thinking about that, like, how is that done? Like, how do they do that? What is an inode? Where are those bytes going? How do those bytes get associated? How does it happen so quickly? All of that stuff. I mean, that that's absolutely mind-boggling, especially if you think about all of this is happening on a spinning platter, a series of spinning platters, and it's it's happening within moments. So it's, and, and of course, these days, it's not even on sp spinning platters it's on 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 uh solid state media so it's it's even happening faster now so it is amazing and i think that the people who understand this stuff and write the stuff and optimize it i mean they're just they are they're way way beyond anything i'll ever understand in terms of code and efficiency and and reliability and all that other stuff um but at the same time as we as we as we may stand in awe of that uh 
there, there's also kind of this, there's an angle that you can look at this stuff from and just kind of, and get that it's not, it, it isn't just a big void of of unknowable mystery. You you can kind of, you can wrap your mind around it. And, the, and there's an exercise that you can do to help you if you don't understand it, understand what a, a file system is. And that is simply to, um, well, I guess the super simple one, I mean, I, it's not quite as, as profound as as doing it on as doing this on a thumb drive like a uh, USB thumb drive or something but it's also a lot safer but you could just kind of imagine if you will that you want to write data to a, an an object to a to a place to a location and so you could say okay well i'm going to echo quote hello space world close quote and I'm going to echo that and redirect that into a file called hello.fs. Or how about just myfs? My.fs. That's my file system. Okay, so we've just written a file to a file system. We, the file is uh, hello world. Or, or rather, the file consists of the characters h-e-l-l-o and then a space and then w-o-r-l-d. That's the contents of my file. And that file has gone into my.fs. Well, that doesn't quite compute though, right? Because I didn't write a file to my.fs. I wrote some ASCII characters to my.fs. So if I wanted to really make that a file, I guess what I could instead do is echo, and let's just do, um, I don't know, let's do a, let's do a semicolon, hello space world, and then we'll do another semicolon. Now I've written a file because I've delimited the the boundaries of hello world by semicolons. I've got one at the start, I've got one at the end, and that'll be that that that's my file definition. Of course you always will, you, you want a file name as well, so we could go echo semicolon and then I'll just call this one hello.txt and then I'll do a colon. So then it's semicolon hello.txt colon hello world semicolon. So now I've got delimiting characters that kind of encompass the file, and then I've got a little bit of a header in, in the front, hello.txt, so that's the name. Cool. Okay, so now let's say that I want to uh, write a new file to my little file system. I'm going to call it echo quote semicolon. I'm going to call this one test.txt, so then colon to end my header. And then I'm just going to do this is a test period and then semicolon, and then close quote, and then I'm going to append that to my.fs. Okay, so now we are building a file system here. It's a very rudimentary file system. It's very, very restricted, but it is a file system. It's, it's a file system in a little file that exists on another file system, but that's okay. That it's still a file system. It is a system by which you manage files. Now, if we wanted to extract a file from the myfs, we would have to do to we'd, we'd have to do something like uh, we'd have to do like a maybe a uh, can we just cut dash f two delimited by the semicolon? That's something that we could do, and that would be my dot fs. Um, yes, so that gives me hello dot text colon hello world, and then it gives me test dot text colon, this is a test. So I've just listed my files because it's delimited by a semicolon. So that, that worked out pretty well for me. Um, and then we could we could design something a little bit more complex to just grab the, the contents of the file or the name of the file. So we could like pipe the results of that through. Um, well, yeah, we could, we, we, I, this is belaboring the point. You, you, you see my point. So we've, we've written data into a, a thing that can carry, that can, uh, that can contain data that can track data, and then we've designed a way to extract it again from that place. And that sort of basically is a file system. Now everything after that, after that practice, and you can do this, the cool thing to do is that same exercise, but instead of redirecting your echo statements to to your to a file, you echo it to a, and you have to be very careful when you're doing this because you do not want to do this to the wrong device. But you can you can actually direct it to a device without a file system. Like you can plug a, a USB thumb drive into your computer, find out where it lives. Let's say it's slash dev slash sdx. Zero it out, and then just start echoing stuff into it. And then if you cat that device, you'll see the stuff that you echoed. And that's a useful trick to be able to pretend like you're building a file system because you're writing raw data to something that doesn't have a file system. It can accept your data, it will store it, but it's not going to be able to... It, nobody knows how to get the data except you. 
So you could just cat whatever on that device, and then you see it in your terminal, and you can come up with statements like this cut-f2-d semicolon name of device, and then you can or, or output of device, and then you can you can slice it and dice it and see and see how a file system would would have to be designed in order to accommodate your really poorly designed file system. And of course, in in real life, when we're using real file systems, we have things we, we have things to be worried about. Like, well, wait a minute, this is on a rotating platter, or at least it used to be. And so, and probably still is. I mean, even though solid state is a pretty pretty common thing now, I think a lot of us still have spinning drives in our lives. So when when the data is located on a on a spinning disk with a, a finite amount of storage, now it has to figure out how it's going to make files bigger without also overwriting a file that needs to exist as well in that space. So then you get you get all of these sort of problems of, of okay, well, how much space am I going to allot for this file, which in theory shouldn't be too big, but gosh, it could be big. We don't know what the future is going to hold. And then how are you going to connect all that data together and so on? So it becomes really, really complex. And then you've got you've got concerns like, well, what happens if someone, if the power fails and I haven't written all the data to that, to the correct locations yet? What then? So you come up with a journal and then you write all your data to the journal because that's a really super fast and easy place to stash stuff. And then if the power gets pulled, you can turn everything back on and if the journal's populated with stuff then you write it to where it needed where where it was meant to go and so on file systems they're magic but at the same time they're also not magic okay so that's kind of i just wanted to make sure that we all kind of understood what what a file system was and and now i'm i'm going to i'm going to say that we all do we all understand what a file system is now all right so i'm going to make a directory here i'm going to call it fs i'll go into fs this is my working directory okay so um what I'll do is I'm going to create a, I guess I'll just keep doing the, the same thing. So I'm going to make a directory called hello, and I'm going to make a directory called test. And in hello, I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to list my bin folder into a file called hello world. So that's good. Now hello has a file called world in it, and I'm going to list, uh, I don't know, um, var log, var log into a file called test log. Perfect. I've got a super simple little directory structure here. It's got two directories, hello and test, and there's a file in each of those directories. If I were to, for some reason, if, if I knew that those files were read-only, I have no reason to to think that I'm going to have to add data to that to that structure, maybe I would want to squash it. And I could do that with make squash, actually pseudo make squash, I think. Well, let's try it without it. Make squash fs. Uh, actually, I'm going to back out one. I'm going to make squash fs, uh, and then my directory called fs, and then I'll just call that, um, you know what, I'm going to change this directory from fs to dir, because fs, I'm going to be saying fs a lot. So, okay, make squash fs dir, and I'm going to make that dir.squash, sqsh. And it tells me that it has done that for me. If I do a listing of of files here, yes, it looks like I do have a new file called dir.squash. It's 496 bits. No, 4096 bits. That's four bytes. And um, I think that looks pretty good to me. And it seems pretty reasonable. Okay, so that exists. That's a file system now. And I can test this out by doing a sudo mount dir.squash and I'll mount it to uh, mount or slash mnt slash hd and that of course always already um, exists on slack where they, they pre-populate slash mnt a little bit. Now if I look in slash mnt slash hd I have two folders called hello and test and if I do a cat on hello world actually you know what I'm just gonna do a head head on that. Yeah, it looks like there's a listing of of all the the different files in my bin folder uh, there in this in this in this file. And then I'm going to do a head of or I'll do a tail just to mix things up. Tail of slash mnt slash hd slash test log. And yeah, it looks like there's a bunch of uh, a listing of log files that that exist in my slash var folder, which is what I put there. So there you go. That's um that's that's squashfs 
Honestly, that's kind of it. Um, that is, um, that's squashing a file system and mounting it to a location of your choosing. Now, of course, you could do this, you know, on boot. You you could squash a file, uh, a file, yeah, a file system or a, a directory tree of your system and squash it and then have Linux mount that on boot if you wanted to. I don't know why you would want to, but you do see that sort of thing sometimes. I know some of the Linux distributions designed to run on thumb drives will use SquashFS, either um, as as their base image, because why not? It can be small, and it's read-only. So they'll use SquashFS as their as the the root of their system. They also will use SquashFS sometimes as the as kind of the the starting point for like the user's home directory and then they'll use something else like UnionFS to make modifications and and add that to the squash image. But that that's getting beyond what what we're talking about here because we're we are exclusively talking about SquashFS. So the other side of SquashFS or or the other side of of make SquashFS is unsquashFS which is really just an unarchiving tool. So if we do unsquash fs dash dash help, it tells us that there's a couple of different options, well, several different options, and uh, because this is an unarchiving tool or an extraction tool, I think it helps to think of it in terms of the workflow as a, a tar file. So if you have a tar file and you want to get a file out of that tar file, obviously you could just untar it, you could ar- unarchive it, which the analogy the analogous action there for squashfs would be to mount the squashfs file into your into your file tree which we just momentarily just just moments ago we did that so uh the other way of doing that in in tar and in squash is to list the files in the archive or the file system and then extract the file that you want and here's how we do that so i'm in an empty directory right now just so that i have a clean test environment because it's gonna eventually we're gonna it's gonna make a new directory and i want to be able to see where it goes and, and see see it happen so um but in real life you don't necessarily have to but um we'll do unsquash fs and then the path to dir dot sqsh actually i did that wrong already unsquash fs dash ls and then the path to the the squash file system, and that simply tells me what's in this squash this uh, squashfs. So the the root level directory is called squashfs-root, which of course I didn't make that directory myself. That's an artifact of squashfs. So we've got the root folder here, squashfs-root, and then slash hello slash hello slash world hello slash test slash test slash log. So that's the those are the files available to me and if i want to extract one of those i'll just do unsquashfs path to my squash directory and then tell it what what i want to extract so in this case i'm going to say well let, you know what let's do it wrong first let's watch it fail um because it is it's a little bit disconcerting when it fails cuz it's it, it acts like it succeeded so we're going to do unsquashfs tilde slash demo slash dir dot sqsh space log and that tells me that it's created one directory but zero files zero symlinks zero devices and zero fifos so um what it's done is it's created squashfs-root and then that's just empty and i don't i don't know exactly why it does that on a failed operation that seems a little bit odd to me i don't know that that would be that that's the expected behavior when it can't it, essentially it's not finding a file called log because that 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 path starting at squashfs-root that path does not exist now if i do that command again except this time correctly unsquashfs tilde slash demo slash dir dot sqsh space test slash log now it creates one file and two directories and so if i do an ls dash capital r or just dash dash recursive on squash fs dash root i find that there's a directory called test and then inside of that well there's a directory called squash fs dash root and then inside that is a directory called test and inside of that is a file called log and certainly if i were to uh, do a head or i think it was a tail for that one wasn't it of squash test log uh there it is the contents of slash var slash log or whatever i piped into into the log file that's pretty much it for squash fs to be honest that's that's the use case and the workflow uh the only other thing i can think to kind of mention here would be some of the options which uh i feel like these are i mean definitely when you're first getting started using squash fs i think you'll probably get by a lot without 
really having to worry about any of the options because most of them are they're, they're relatively advanced i would say uh i guess it kind of probably depends on your use case but for me yeah i've, I've never used any of the well I've, I've used some of the options like the dash ls or just dash l but um yeah the, so make squash fs for instance you can set your block size you know and i i don't care about my block size of uh, the, the block size of the of the of the file system that's never mattered to me you can um choose the compression algorithm that you're that it's using by default it uses xz but you could use l uh, lisma lzo and gzip you can choose to include or exclude extended attributes from your file system uh, you can tell it to not perform duplicate file checking which normally it does it tries to remove duplicate files you can set a specific UID or GID that could be handy I could see that actually being handy um that's about it well I mean that's not about it there's there's more there there are more options but I think you get the the idea for unsquashing you've got things like uh, yes unsquash all of the extra attributes or extended attributes or do not extract them uh, along with the with a file that I'm extra uh, that I'm unsquashing you can give it a destination a dash D for destination and then provide a file name so it's it's creating that squash root FS content in some other location you can tell it how many processors you want to use so if it's a particularly big squash FS image you could you could dedicate more power to it so that's dash P for processors and that's probably about it honestly again you can set the decompression algorithm uh, between gzip or xz or, or whatever and that's it that's that's squash fs it's kind of beautifully simple if you think about it. it it isn't as complex as you might think a file system related command could be it's a i mean i i, I almost think it's simpler than make fs ext4 in a way not really but i mean it kind of is anyway that's make squash fs and unsquash fs hopefully it's useful or or informative to you where would you use squash fs i mean i don't know i think it would be i've heard of some people having really interesting ideas for how to use squash fs and certainly app image i believe it is i believe app image is using squash fs as their new as their new method of of packing all of their information. It used to be a .iso, and and that's how they sort of created their file system. But they're using, I think, SquashFS or something very, very similar. I think it might be SquashFS, and, and that's their new method of packaging up all of the things that you need for for your application to run. So it's it's quite clever. I mean, that's that's probably among the the more clever uses right there. Whether or not personally I have use for Make SquashFS. Or, or squash FS in general, not really sure. I mean, not directly. I'll use it indirectly, like when I'm using an app image, if that's indeed what they're using, or or I'll use it now on a on a thumb drive, you know, a, a live distro image, that sort of thing. But I, I can't really, I can't think of times where I've sat down and thought the perfect solution for whatever I'm thinking about is squash FS. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I haven't really found like that sort of that everyday use case for myself. But now you know how to use it. You see that it's pretty simple. And so if you want to, you can create file systems that are contained in just one file and then save that file to like a thumb drive or put it on a server or or email it to yourself. You know, you've got this thing, and then you can expand it, and it has all its its structure ready to go. I guess in a way, it really is a lot like a tarball that just happens to be something that you can mount as if though it was an external disk. That's kind of cool. Um, let's go get some coffee. Speaking of kind of cool, then we'll come back and talk about sudo. 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 <laughs> about sudo. I probably have a lot more to say about this than I think I do, and I might as well get started now. First things first, I didn't used to be a user of sudo. For a very long time, I just thought it was like this weird extraneous command that was probably nice for users of a system where there are a lot of users, but not really necessary if you're the only person using your computer. That just didn't seem 
It felt it felt like pseudo was just one more thing to to worry about in a way. So I didn't really get why people were so interested in pseudo, and I didn't really get why people were so keen on disabling the root account in favor of sudo. Because I thought, well, surely if someone's going to hack your system, then they may as well just hack your sudo account, if, if that's the problem. Like, why don't they just hack the one that controls sudo, and then they get access to your whole system, and all they've done is just, they've shifted control away from the root user to the person who is basically root. If you don't know what sudo is, don't worry, I'm going to get to that. But in fact, I guess let, let's get to that now. But I will say about what I used to think about sudo, it's technically not wrong, it's just not optimal. So what is sudo or sudo? It's a command, S-U-D-O. It is not universal to all Unixes, Unices, but it is pretty popular because it is very, very common on Linux. It's very, it is, it is, it is on Mac OS. Between those two, I think you have a significant portion of the of the mind share. So sudo is is quite popular, but there are related commands. There are things that are similar to sudo that are designed to escalate privileges on an operating system, and sudo, or sudo, is one of those. And the idea is that you're just a normal user on your computer typing some commands, or, or configuring a, a printer, or adding, I don't know, some fancy device, and your computer stops you and asks you for a password. Now, on a, a multi-system operating system, like Linux, Unix, there there's there are separations between users and permissions, and it's important because even if you don't mean to screw something up on your computer or on your friend's computer, you can. There are accidents that happen, and you don't generally plan on them. They're accidents, and you could do a lot of damage if your computer just kind of lets you do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. Now, if that sounds reprehensible to you because you're, um, you, you think, oh, well, I should be able to do anything on my computer that I want, then by all means, you can run as root and just do whatever you want. But that's generally considered a bad idea simply, be simply because there is a potential for mistakes. That's just human, human nature. You can make mistakes. And so the computer, to be more user-friendly, is designed to trip you up a little bit when you try to do something stupid. Now, a computer can't really decide what's stupid and what's not stupid, so the, the way that we tend to determine that, to make the determination of when the computer should try to trip you up, is essentially when you try to do quote-unquote dangerous things. And again, a computer doesn't know what's dangerous and what's not dangerous, but there are just some things that the designers of, of the operating system that you're running and the desktop that you're running and so on have decided, well, this is a security risk. If you do this incorrectly, then bad things could happen. Either you could erase your data, which would make you very sad, or you could open up something so that someone else could access your data, which could make you very sad. So when you're, when you're a user, you have a login account, and the lo when you log in, you are restricted to to your home directory. That's that's where you get to write data. You get to make all the data that you want in your home directory, but you can't just go making files outside of your home directory. There's one exception to that, usually, and that's the slash TMP folder. A, a temporary folder is what they call it. The folder itself actually isn't temporary, but the files in it are meant to be temporary. You can usually create files without any trouble in slash tmp but everywhere else slash usr slash uh um usr what's what's it, uh, slash var slash at etsy i was beginning to think there were only like two folders in the linux root directory um or the at, at linux root um and so those are all protected from from you as a normal user and if you want to make files in those directories in those locations you would have to escalate privileges you need additional privileges to do that so you've already logged in once as yourself with your you know, password one two three hopefully that's not really your password um, and that gives you permissions to access your home directory it doesn't let you access your friend's home directory and it doesn't let you access slash etsy or slash user or usr or slash whatever it's just your home directory so one way to escalate privileges to, to become a a user who can do whatever they want is to change your user sort of who you are on that computer momentarily and that can be done usually again on linux uh, at least you can do it with an su which stands for either switch user some people think it call it's called super user i don't think it it, it i think it's it's got to be switch user for me because uh you, you don't always become the super user you can switch user to someone else 
I think of it as a switch user. Uh, I have not done the research to, to back that up. Either way, SU usually lets you change your your user ID. And so you can do SU space dash, and then it defaults, if you don't give it a new username, it defaults to root user, the, the super user. You type in the root password, and then now you have root. You are, uh, you are you have all the privileges. You are unfettered in what you can do on that system. Now, once again, if you're the only person using that system, that's not a big deal. It's fine to do that. You can just escalate privileges, and then you have all the control that you need. And I do that all the time on my own Slackware box. I do it very, very reliably. I do that when I'm installing software and so on. Because it's a quick and easy way to get a root prompt, so you don't have to keep typing in sudo all the time. Now, the problem with that, though, is that it's defaulting to root. So that's a single target. And if someone were to attempt to gain access to your system and they have no idea who you are, they just know that you are an IP address out there on the internet, then when they're knocking on your SSH port, then they can be, they can rest assured that they know one user who exists on every Linux box and that user's name is R-O-O-T. And that's the the big weakness here that I think it was Ubuntu really that pioneered this. It may, maybe not. Maybe I'm making that up. But that's when I became aware of it. Anyway, I think um, they they decided that what needed to happen was that Linux boxes needed the 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 user called root to simply not be enabled. That's that's not a valid user. Now you can do essentially the same thing in SSH. You can tell SSH itself, never allow a user named root into this box. And I'm, I'm assuming that works pretty well. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know that it has ever failed for me. But certainly leaving that root, that, that root user active, that there is a, that's, that's an attack vector that's very easy to zero in on. Even if you've never seen the person, you know, you don't even know who owns the computer. All you know is that there's an IP address that you are able to ping. And so you think, well, I may as well try to get in there with the, with the user named root, because that ought to exist. Especially if you've done an in-map scan and determined that it is a POSIX operating system of some sort. So that, that that's the danger, and it is one reason why the root user is considered, widely considered, kind of a, a dangerous concept almost. So lately, and by lately I mean probably over the, for the past 10 years, distributions have done away with, more or less, the idea of a root user. And when you're creating your users on your new, brand new computer, in, you're, you're installing Linux and you're creating your users, it will often simply let you create your user, your personal user, and designate that user as an administrator of that system. And it adds you to a special group, often com it's oftentimes called WHEEL, W-H-E-E-L, and this grants you some special permissions, or the potential for special permissions. It, maybe it adds you automatically to the sudo group, or to the sudo, um, the, the, the configuration file, uh, usually by virtue of the fact that you have been designated as an administrator by being added to a special group. Uh, and, and, and there is no root user. You can't log in as a root user. That just, that, that user is, is, un, is insignificant. It, it essentially doesn't really exist on that system. That way, if someone sees that you've got an IP address out there on the internet, on some network, then they are unable to assume any username. Now, obviously, they're going to try, and if you look at your SSH logs, well, maybe not yours personally, I mean, it depends on your setup, but um, hopefully you won't see this in your personal computer log, but if you, if you look at a server log, and you look at all the people trying to get into that server, well, all the scripts trying to get into that server, you'll see that they try very predictable names. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's, it's just a brute force tactic. You know there's a node out there. You, you maybe know that it's coming back as a, as a POSIX OS of some sort. And so you think to yourself, I'll try root, I'll try MySQL, I'll try Apache, I'll try, you know, all the ones that are sort of like built into a typical Linux server or BSD server or maybe Mac OS something or another. You kind of you, you can make you can make really broad assumptions and just keep keep trying those as your starting place. Now if you don't have any of those assumptions to make, then you're really just out on a limb and you're just you have to do a full dictionary attack of every possible username. And since usernames don't even have to be words, a lot of times they they could you know, they they can be a series of letters, but you've got a lot of um you got a lot of 
things that you'll have to try then. So getting rid of the root user, actually really, really smart. I've learned, I've learned that by um, pretty much looking through server logs is what kind of made it sort of hit home for me finally. So now let's really talk about sudo and um, what it can do. So I've got that, I, I generally set up sudo now all the time. I'm, I'm quite, quite a fan of it now. So sudo, if you type it in and then you type some command after it, so let's do ls, then it prompts you for your password. And your password is your user password. That always seemed like a weakness to me because I thought, wait a minute, if the sudo, if the big administrative password is the same password as the user password, that seems like a mistake to me. It seems like there should be a separate password for, for sudo because you don't want to you don't want to have your your normal user password discovered and then you're in you're into the system and now to do any fancy action that you want all you have to do is enter the same password again that just seems surely there there ought to be a different password for that action and while there may be an argument for that uh, i'm not sure that there is actually but maybe there is there's a scenario where that would be useful uh the the idea behind sudo is to verify that the person trying to do the dangerous thing is the same person that logged in in the first place. That's what the sudo command is tuned to do. So it could ask you, and, and you can configure it to ask you for a different password. You, you can create a separate user reserved just for this for the administrative actions, and you can prompt sudo to prompt you for this target. It's called target pw. It's a, it's a option that you can set in the sudoers file and then it it'll ask you instead of well you have to, you have to tell it to what user you want to verify as so dash you some somebody uh, or dash you admin or you know whatever whatever secret username you were going to use and then it would ask you for that user's password so you you can do that but the the intent is not just to create a new chain of, of passwords to remember and and, and encrypt locally. Uh, the idea is to verify that the person sitting at the keyboard right now is the same person who has logged in. So the scenario that I imagine, I always imagine, is that you are at work or whatever, you're typing away, typing away, you get up from your computer, foolishly do not put it to sleep, and you go get a cup of coffee. You come back and, or while you're, while you're, away, someone walks up to your computer that you did not uh, lock. I said put to sleep, but I meant just, you know, screen lock it. Uh, and they start typing, and they type dangerous things. Now, if sudo is not there to to prompt for a password, then then they would be able to do whatever they want in theory. But sudo's there, so now when they, when they do the dangerous action, whatever it may be, sudo asks for a password. It's asking for your password. Well, they don't know your password. They didn't log in. They've just taken over your computer temporarily. And I do get the sense that there's a bit of superficiality to the to the idea that oh well, let's just put another password there because surely that will that will trip someone up because in the scenario that someone has obtained a password then it doesn't really matter whether it's your password or the root password that they need to obtain. They're going to obtain the password and then they're going to proceed. So if if that's where we're at it doesn't really seem to matter that much whether it's it's a secret password or your secret password. Both should never be discovered, and if they are discovered, then you're in trouble. So, sudo, it just verifies that you're the same person that you were when you logged in. Now, on many Linux distributions, sudo is set up for you. It is configured from the start, and it, when you create that initial user and mark that user as an administrative user, it, you are added to the sudo group and you are able to invoke sudo to do lots of different administrative commands. Slackware, that is not the case. It includes sudo, but it doesn't come set up for you. So you need to set that up for yourself. It is not difficult. It is simply a matter of editing a sudoers file. S-U-D-O-E-R-S, sudoers. This file can only be edited by the command vi-sudo. That's V-I-S-U-D-O. If you, if you know me, at all, I use the Dvorak keyboard. Dvorak keyboard doesn't really love Vim and or Vi, uh, and so I tend to avoid Vi just just based on my keyboard, to be honest. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a workaround myself for that, and that workaround is to set an environment variable before issuing my command uh, on the same line. So I'll do sudo all capital underscore editor equals, and then whatever editor I want to use, I'm gonna use jmax, which is the Joe editor 
but with Emacs key bindings, and then space, and then V-I-S-U-D-O. And that launches the Joe editor with Emacs key bindings in my terminal, and it opens this sudoers file. This is pre-populated. It, it's got a lot of different options in it, so if you just kind of read through it, you get the feeling for what everything, what your different sort of security models are. And the one that I generally use is just the, for myself, for my personal computers, I just use the, the simplest one, which is wheel all equals all all and it, it says right there it says uncomment to allow members of group wheel to execute any command and for my purposes for my personal computer purposes that's really all i need is yes just make it so that the sudo command gives me all access because once i've confirmed that it's me then that's really all i need is that's i just want that that extra step of uh, verification and then and then it's good to go for everything the cool thing about sudo is though you can you don't have to grant all permission you can you can you, you can parse out permissions to people based on on who they are and and what you want them to be able to do. It's very, very nice. It's very slick. Um, so for instance, you could have um, you could have user alias specifications. So there's a group of users, and it could be a username, it could be a UID, it could be a user group, a Unix group rather, and you can add these, these entities, whatever they are, to a, to a, a user alias. So for instance, the example that it provides in, in the pre-populated configuration file, user underscore alias admins all capitals equals and then it, it lists three three different names with with that with that group being created that user alias being created you can now assign permissions to the admins you can give them very specific commands that they may or may not do so for instance you might say command underscore alias admins equals and you might let them do i don't know slash sbin halt slash sbin reboot slash sbin power off but only the the people assigned to that group may run those commands that's pretty great uh, and it, it doesn't have to be though you know it could be it could be any number of commands um, that you assign to people for, based on their on their different tasks so I mean you can imagine for instance there being a some number of, of web developers in a company and you want to give your web developers permission to you know maybe start and stop the the web service the, the web server that they're running because maybe they're going to have to troubleshoot and so you could give just your web developers permission for just that command or 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 just that script or whatever it is that you're you're give you, that however you've enabled this process to to occur you can give them access to that to that process, and you can make it off limits for everyone else. But you can have everyone else being able to, uh, I don't know, do something else like compile. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, compile code or whatever. So yes, it is very flexible, and it's all in this sudoers file. And you can read through all the different examples, and you'll kind of get a feel for it. So once you've added yourself to the sudoers file by means of identifying what group you are in, and then enabling that group to take whatever action you want. Like I say, for me, I just do um, percent wheel all equals parentheses all close parentheses space all. And that says that it, it lets the group wheel execute any command. You can even, amazingly, and this is kind of crazy, you could do that with no password required. And there's a line for that. It tells you how to do it. It's percent wheel all equals all no password colon all. So y you can you can make sudo really, really pretty transparent to yourself. It doesn't have to be the group wheel. It could be the group sudo. It could be the group, um, I don't know, staff or, or admins or, or whatever group you have on your system where you're assigning people to certain tasks. And it's it's very easy to define in the sudoers file as you can see it's just a it's a, a matter of, of either grouping users together in a sudoer um, user alias or using their gr a common group name to designate them to, to de designate them as people with certain privileges and so on it's it's quite simple as you can see now once you've done that you you've got sudo enabled and you can start executing commands with sudo and that's just a matter of sudo and then whatever command it is that you want to run. There are some subtleties about sudo that you may or may not run into. So for instance, especially if you're coming to sudo from just plain old su, you might forget, for instance, that your path, sudo echo dollar sign path, let's do that, your path that you've set for yourself is not the same as uh, the, the root user. So 
Just because you're escalating your privileges with pseudo does not mean you're inheriting a better a, a better path. So, for instance, um, if 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 my root user has access to well, let me look at their path. Um, su, and then I do an echo dollar sign path. I get user local s bin user local bin s bin user s bin bin user bin. So there's a couple of important ones there, like slash s bin and slash user slash sbin. None of those paths, th those two paths are not on Clatu's path. When I did an echo of path as, as Clatu, I get a lot of stuff, uh, but none of them are sbins. So that means that if as Clatu, I'm gonna exit out of my root prompt, as Clatu, I say sudo reboot. Boy, do I hope this doesn't work. Uh, it tells me reboot command not found. Why wouldn't it be found? Well, if we do a which reboot command not found right it's not on my path uh, as root if i do which reboot uh, it tells me hey that is in slash sbin slash reboot and clatu doesn't have access to slash sbin so when clatu as a user is running something with sudo permissions I'm not granting myself any new path I'm, I'm simply granting myself permissions to do things that i wouldn't normally have permissions to do now if again on a single user system this probably isn't something that you're going to be using, but let's say that you did have those web developers and those admins and, and so on that you wanted to hand out permissions over sudo, then a user can learn what their permission or what, what, what they're allowed to do with the dash dash list option. So sudo dash dash list, that doesn't do like a list of the current directory or anything. It's not a, it's not a command, it's an option. So sudo dash dash list tells you exactly, it says user clatu may run the following commands. And in this case, it's all, so it's not very useful as a single user. But again, if I, had I defined separate commands that I were, that I was able to run there, then I could get that, you gotta get a list of those commands through the dash dash list option, which I think is, is quite useful, especially in the, in this theoretical model of having lots of different users. And that's where sudo really, really excels, I think. I mean, it, it's great for getting rid of the root user, the, the root vector, but, but for multiple users on a system, it really is great. That's where it really, really shines because you can just do whatever. There are a couple of other things in the sudo package that we should probably talk about. There's uh, CVT sudoers. This is a conversion application that you probably won't use unless uh, you're getting pretty fancy with your sudo install. It is a, it converts between sudoers file formats. It says it can be used to convert between sudoers security po policy file formats. The default input file is sudoers. The default output is LDIF. LDIF being an LDAP, what is it, LDAP uh, data information format. That's what that stands for. So if you're setting up uh, sudo on an LDAP managed, or yeah, an LDAP managed system, you may have a cause to do that. Uh, I do not manage my home computer with LDAP, so that doesn't really affect me right now. But, um, you know, setting up LDAP on an enterprise system or, an organ you know, the system at your organization, and, and if you've got users who aren't they're not Unix users being listed on your system, but they're users in LDAP and you want to assign sudo permissions to them, this would be the way that you would go about doing that. Sudo replay, or sudo replay rather, uh, is a, a funky little playback system for your sudo logs, which don't necessarily exist. Now, I admit I have not really been logging much at all at home lately, so I, I know I don't have the sudo logs turned on. So that is something that I can configure in the sudoers file. So I'll do a, I'll get a root prompt here, and then I'll do my sudo underscore editor equals jmax space by sudo. That opens that up, and now I need to do a search probably in here for log. Here's a log uncomment to unable to, to enable rather logging of a command's output except for sudo re except for sudo replay and reboot use sudo replay to play back logged sessions okay so default log output default uh, user sbin user bin sudo replay log output default user log bin sudo replay log output defaults reboot log output so what it's saying is uh, so we're in a, we're in enabling log output for for sudo, but it is disabling sudo replay from replaying itself and from replaying a reboot. So that, that's that's rather significant. So I'll save that, and now sudo is being 
logged. It is uh, anything that I do with sudo will be logged to that file. So I'll just uh, I'll change to my demo directory here, and I'll do a sudo list, and it lists stuff. So now I have one command in my sudo log. I should I should have one command. So this is going to act a little bit like the history command in your your normal terminal. Uh, there's two ways to to approach this. You can either view what is in your log. That's just like typing out history, or you can you can run a command again from your log, which would be like hitting the exclamation point and then the the number of the entry in your history file. So for instance, I can do a sudo replay dash dash list to view my log. And one of the entries in that log file it contains a TSID, well, the only entry right now. It tells me where I was when I executed the command, who executed it, what the command was, and there's this designator, which happens to be 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0001. So if I do a sudo, sudo replay that number, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0001, then I get my the, the directories listed again as sudo. And that's it. That is everything in the sudo package. That's everything that the sudo command can do for you. And thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. life has lost its zest.